As a physician who cares for individuals with Alzheimer's disease, you might think I'm among those hoping the FDA will approve aducanumab, an experimental Alzheimer's drug developed by Biogen. But I'm not. And if it gets the green light, I can't see myself recommending it to my patients. Colleagues of mine in the Alzheimer's sphere are also reluctant about approving aducanumab. Why? Biogen hasn't made a convincing case for it. The crux of the confusion over aducanumab is the data. They're incomplete and contradictory. People with Alzheimer's and their families are desperate for effective treatments for the disease. Aducanumab might be that treatment, but we won't know until Biogen invests the time and money needed to run well-designed trials and complete them. The day such a trial brings home positive results will be a turning point for people with Alzheimer's and for my practice. That was Jason Karlowish, an Alzheimer's specialist and co-director of the Penn Memory Center, reading from his very recent first opinion titled, If the FDA Approves Biogen's Alzheimer's Treatment, I Won't Prescribe It. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. The demands of innovation are evolving faster with each new discovery. At Cytiva, we evolve with you using flexible, modular solutions to shorten the time to the next milestone and to market. Learn more at Cytiva.com slash cell therapy. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com forward slash cell therapy. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, Stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare providers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's great to talk with you again, Jason. Good to be back here, Pat. It has been a wild week in the overlapping worlds of drug approvals and Alzheimer's disease, with the FDA kicking it off by doing on Monday what you were hoping it would not do approve a drug called aducanumab, which will have the brand name. Agihelm. Let's set the stage for our conversation. What is aducanumab and what is it supposed to do? Aducanumab is a monoclonal antibody uh, that targets amyloid in the brain of a human and uh, removes, reduces amyloid in the brain of a human. Uh, The hypothesis is if you do that, that you are uh, going after amyloid, one of the principal pathologies in persons living with Alzheimer's disease, and you will be uh, uh, intervening on their disease. But another way to say that is you would be treating their disease, you would be slowing their disease. It's one of several different drugs that have a similar kind of mechanism going after amyloid um, that are promising as potential treatments for Alzheimer's disease. Another way to describe them are, quote, disease-slowing treatments is the theory, is that they would that's what their effect would be. You know, to be clear, I think one of the things that got lost in the conversation this week is what it actually does. And and so aducanumab is not a cure for Alzheimer's disease, and it doesn't necessarily improve memory loss or personality changes or other symptoms, but it may slow its progression. Is that the bottom line? That's the logic behind it and other drugs of its kind of mechanism. This idea of, of tamping down the rate of decline seen in a degenerative disease like Alzheimer's disease. And I think that, you know, that, that heuristic model holds across a variety of chronic progressive uh, degenerative uh, diseases like uh, heart disease, 
multiple sclerosis, et cetera, that a treatment is, is sort of slowing down the rate with which the pathologies are causing further disability. Among people with Alzheimer's and their families, is slowing the progression of the disease enough for people to want it and for clinicians like you to prescribe it? Yeah, no, absolutely. In principle, that is. We studied that uh, uh, in my lab uh, several years ago, uh, the willingness of caregivers and patients, persons living with Alzheimer's disease, to slow the progression of the disease. So you know, we really made sure they understood that concept of slowing the progression, meaning not halting it, not reversing it, but delaying the time, if you will, that's how we described it, delaying the time before things happen in the future. So for example, on average, it might be five years uh, when people need uh, uh, care for uh, bathing, dressing, grooming. This drug will make it on average six years that you would need that help. So people got that. And what we found is there was um, a notable proportion of individuals uh, who were willing to take that drug. Uh, in particular, there was a notable portion of caregivers willing to say, I'll let my relative have a drug that slows the disease, doesn't cure it. And here was the key thing we found. The severity of the relative's Alzheimer's disease dementia was a very poor predictor of that willingness. In other words, the sicker the person was, they were just as likely to want to take it. They were sensitive, though, to the risk of the drug that we were giving them uh, to consider and uh, their perception of the relative's quality of life on a measure of quality of life. And perception of quality of life and risk were the chief drivers of willingness to slow the disease. Oh, that's interesting. I, I would have thought there would have been sort of like a dose response Dose response to... You know, how symptomatic someone was. Yes. Well, you know, how sick you are with Alzheimer's depends on who's assessing it and how they're assessing it. This is a many hydra-headed disease. <laughs> of course. Uh, it's not as simple as, you know, heart disease, namely delaying the time before I die. And I think that's, that, that's why this disease is so fascinating. Um, yeah. You made the case in your first opinion essay that aducanumab doesn't live up to its promise. That's right. Why not? Because the data aren't there. Aducanumab may be an effective drug. It is possible that I will, I would hope in a short amount of time, a few years, whatever, be writing an essay that says I can't wait to prescribe aducanumab. But right now, on the data that are available, I am not an enthusiastic prescriber. I say that now this week because now I am, I can prescribe the drug, and we'll talk now why I, you know, I'm becoming, I have to be an unenthusiastic prescriber of it. Uh, but the problem is the data are not there. The data that were handed to FDA, I agree with the advisory panel that reviewed them. I agree with Tristan Mazzi, the statistician at the FDA. There are a lot of interesting findings there, but when you put it all together, the data are not adequate to say that this is a safe and effective drug for wide prescription within the Alzheimer's clinical care community. So virtually everybody on the FDA advisory panel voted against it. Is that correct? That's right. They were asked, do the data... Uh, show that this is a safe and effective treatment. There, there were very specific questions they were asked, but if you, the sort of portmanteau point of those questions was, is this a safe and effective treatment? And the majority of them, uh, 10 out of 11, said no, you know, with their votes. That's correct. Yeah. I guess what the FDA based its approval on was not uh, a change in progression of symptoms, but removal of aducanumab, sort of a bio. By, uh, uh, sorry, removal of amyloid um, based on PET scans. Is that correct? Yeah. And so this is where things get, um, I think, uh, disturbing. Um, and something's going on at FDA. So we convene an advisory board. FDA convenes an advisory board in November, asks them the questions that we've just talked about. The advisory board gives back the answers. 
November ends, we move on. FDA asks for more data, postpones the decision, as you know, in January from Biogen, more data from Biogen, we don't know what they got. No further advisory board meetings. And then the announcement came out. And the announcement said, I know, essentially what the announcement said was, I know we asked our advisory board to consider a set of questions under a set of regulations around safety and efficacy. But we're actually using a different set of regulations uh, that have a different set of questions. And we have decided to approve the drug using this different set of regulations that ask different questions. And we've never convened an advisory board to give us advice on that. Interesting. And the regulations they used were regulations that allow um, expedited approval, um, there's other terms that describe this, on the basis of, quote, a surrogate. Um, In other words, a measure that stands for but is not a clinical measure. So a good example of a surrogate, low-density lipoprotein level. You go to the doctor, you get an LDL test, high LDL. What we believe now on the basis of a variety of experimental and observational studies done over years, that a drug that lowers LDL is a beneficial drug for you to reduce the chance you have a stroke, heart attack, or death from one of those events. And uh, so FDA said, that's like amyloid. Reduce amyloid and you will reduce your uh, chances of having accumulative disabilities caused by Alzheimer's disease. In our field, our collective jaws hit the floor. Um, While that's a very provocative idea and one that the field would like to validate that reducing a biomarker, namely amyloid or tau, at a certain stage of the disease is an effective surrogate to stand for a good, effective treatment. But we're not there yet. And in some sense, the FDA agrees because the, re- the regulatory mechanism that the FDA used requires a confirmatory trial to establish just that. And so what we have now is a drug out on the market that I can prescribe and also the need for a confirmatory randomized and controlled trial of that same drug to confirm whether in fact that drug has a benefit for patients. I, I, I find myself living in kind of a, a, a sort of ironic world now, almost comic of like, you know, yes, but occupy two true contradictory states of affairs. It's available, but we need to do a study. A study to confirm what Biogen claims the drug can do that the FDA just approved. That sounds a little crazy to me. Well, and but and then and just to add, and I will say, to add insult to injury, leadership at Biogen have said we might have to have that study done for nine years. And so all that time, clinicians like yourself can be prescribing aducanumab, adihelm, as this trial kind of crunches on. Exactly. The regulations under, uh, understand that the trial will be designed and ready at the time of approval. Be, you know, I, I'm not quoting them word for word here. There's, there's, there's no protocol out there. There's, it's still a sort of idea and uh, a work in progress. It's extremely disappointing. And, you know, what bothers me is that you hear how, well, the patients are desperate. We've got to get this drug out there. Well, but, you know, they gave you their time, energy, and effort in your trials to get you where you are. And now you're putting out data that admittedly need further validation. And, you know, so what does it say to the people who gave their time and effort to make it possible? And what does it say now that you're saying, and, you know, we'll we'll get around to doing the other trial. It might be take us nine years. It feels sort of like emergency use authorization of COVID-19 vaccines and remdesivir and other things to counter the COVID-19 pandemic, that 
there's some evidence, so let's go ahead and we'll see what happens later. Um, you can draw those analogies. That is the theme of what we are talking about. Um, I, I would, I will not comment on the data that allowed the various vaccines for COVID to be approved. Um, but I, uh, what I will comment on is they were presented to an advisory board with the question of emergency approval, right? Um, and the advisory board voted and discussed, that didn't happen here. So they're not analogous cases. Imagine instead that the FDA went to those advisory boards for the vaccines and said, are these safe and effective vaccines for the prevention of, or however you would label a vaccine for COVID-19? I don't know what you could label it. And then asked the advisory board to rule on that. Advisory board said, no, we don't think they are. And then the FDA said, well, actually, thank you. Th thank you very much. Time passes. We're approving them on the basis of emergency use authorization. And never went back to the advisory board and said, what do you think about that? Because it's a different set of considerations when you ask to do an emergency use uh, as well as an expedited review. Namely, you are asked to introduce other factors like the strength of the relationship between the uh, drug and its effect on the biomarker, the awfulness of the disease in the community, and the potential for this drug to make a difference on the basis of its risks, hassles, side effects, etc. None of that was discussed. So let's, uh, let me ask another question about the trial, this confirmatory trial that's supposed to happen. Why would people who can be prescribed a drug who are supposedly desperate for it, take part in a clinical trial in which they have a 50-50 chance of getting a placebo? I mean, to ask your question is to answer it. Um, and you have to respect the perspective of the individuals here, you know, um, which is just that, which is, you know, uh, it, it's awful what we've now said to the patients and their families. You know, if you really want to help the field, and boy, many of these folks really want to help the field. I mean, it is touching to listen to persons living with Alzheimer's. You say, look, I'm in this study. I don't think it will benefit me, you know, but if this can help people like me, if this can help my family, I'm doing this clinical trial. <laughs> so, and, I mean, that's what's advanced aducanumab to where it is now, okay? <laughs> And now we're saying, oh, you know what? We'll put it out in the market, and but we'll also do a trial, and we're going to let you now decide. So, do you want to help yourself, maybe, or do you want to help your family? <laughs> hmm. Boy, talk about talk about presenting the American family, you know, uh, struggling with this disease, um, a Sophie's choice. Interesting way to put it. I was just going to ask uh, Gren Gonzalez, uh, an epidemiologist at Yale worries about what he calls the, quote, devil's bargain of approving desperately needed treatments based on preliminary evidence. It sounds like you think that's what's happening here. Interesting phrase, devil's bargain. Um, what is happening here is, is persons living with dementia, persons living with Alzheimer's disease and their families have been presented a uh, difficult moral choice if, in fact, ever that trial's available. Um, I mean, there's, as I said, you know, we haven't heard any plans for it. It's sort of, you know, they're, they're thinking about it. They'll get to it. <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't even begin to imagine the flood of inquiries that you and other Alzheimer's specialists, even primary care physicians, have gotten this week. What's it been like? Well, we've gotten inquiries, but what it's been like has been very interesting, actually. Um, no doubt we've gotten inquiries of people who said, when can I get the drug? But we've also gotten inquiries from people who say just what we, my colleagues have been saying, which is what, what just happened, you know, and, and why? And I'm very bothered that the FDA suddenly just dropped the bar of standards. We've worked really hard to get to this point and now this. 
Um, and in our, at the Penn Memory Center next week, we'll be holding a, courtesy of Zoom, and <laughs> a, a community forum to be, open up a conversation with our community, our patients and caregivers, about the drug. And to have just this kind of discussion about what we know about its, the data that support its prescription. Um, because uh, we've sort of picked up where uh, the rest of the field, see, you know, the uh, others have left off and open up a, a sort of conversation here to help people think through this. I'm a wrong, I, I am a reluctant prescriber at this point. I mean, my, my view is I don't want to, um, well, this is a disease of autonomy. That's what Alzheimer's is. You know, why is Alzheimer's a disease? It's a disease because it takes away your ability to self-determine your life. It takes away your ability to say, I want to go out to eat tonight. I want to go to that restaurant and I'm going to get there and I'm going to go order off the menu and pay the bill. Someone with Alzheimer's disease has trouble finding the restaurant, getting there, <laughs> ordering off the menu, paying the bill, right? So I have to respect that I have to help do everything I can to support my patient's autonomy. Um, and, you know, with this drug out there, um, I'm a reluctant prescriber, but if someone's educated about the uncertainties of its benefit, whether it's even beneficial, its risks, whatever copays are attached to it, and we'll see what those are, you know, I, I have to sort of reluctantly say, okay, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not endorsing it. I'm not advocating for it, but, um, you know, I have to respect that this is a bad disease and this drug is now available. Um, it's a reluctant position to be in, but, but, you know, this is the moral, moral challenge of, of Alzheimer's. But, you know, I don't have the disease. I'm just doing my best to care for the people with it. And uh, I have to respect their position. Uh, but I wish we weren't in this position. I wish right now we were recruiting people for the confirmatory trial. Boy, we'd fill that trial really quickly and we'd get the data and we'd know as a country, this works great or no, this really doesn't work. And so let's move on to the next drug. So how do you have the conversation with somebody, let's say a caregiver like Richard, who we talked with um, on a previous podcast? The challenge for having a conversation with a family member like Richard Bartholomew, the caregiver who, uh, of my patient, uh, Julia Converse, or um, others, is it begins with a, with a topic that's not typical for a, a clinical encounter. So in a clinical encounter talking about a therapy, a drug therapy, it is understood that the drug has a benefit, that it's been established by adequate and random, uh, well-designed uh, controlled trials, that it bears regulatory approval, um, which adds to the sort of trust in the system that put that drug into the uh, clinical practice. But here, what I have to say is, well, the systems put it into clinical practice, the system we trust has put it into clinical practice, but the data don't really establish that it in fact is a benefit. It may benefit, but it actually may not. Not benefit you because of things about you, but just in general people with this disease. And that is not a typical conversation that I've ever had with patients about a, about a, 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 a therapy. And, and, and so it's a bit of a challenge because it's sort of, it's, a, it's gonna, I have to sort of think a bit about how to talk about that, frankly, for want of a better word, epistemologically challenging thing to present to people. But once we get beyond that, then it's a sort of, okay, well, what might be the benefit and what are the known risks? What might be the risks? Okay, and if we get beyond that, and this is gonna be an important issue, you know, how much of 
taking this drug is going to fall upon you in terms of the costs of the drug. The drug Biogenes says they think they're going to they're going to uh, cost about fifty six thousand dollars a year per patient per year. Um, there'll be other costs attached to it as well, such as imaging scans. How much of those will be borne by the patient and their family as a copay, and how much but not? And for a patient, what matters, of course, is the issues of the copay and whatnot. Do you think that the price is going to present uh, disparate challenges? I mean, are, are are will there be people who can't afford it and will have to <laughs> forego? Well, well, I mean, if if that price is um, handed to the patient as a bill, there's absolutely no question um, that that there'll be people who can't afford this truck. I mean, that just goes without saying. Yeah. Um, uh, if even a fraction of that price is passed on to the consumer, um, it's going to present some difficult choices. And boy, is that just deeply frustrating because, you know, one of the reasons why this disease is so devastating is because it takes away a person's autonomy, their self-determination. Another reason why this disease is so devastating is it's an economic cost to a patient and their family. The cost of caregiving, the cost, therefore, of lost wages, um, the cost, therefore, of, of paying others it, 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 instead of losing one's wages. And that's what adds up to the triple-digit billion-dollar cost of the disease is the cost of care. And now you've introduced into that the cost of this drug as well. You say, well, no, wait a minute, but the drug will reduce the disability and reduce the burdens of caregiving. But we're back to our original discussion. We're not sure that it does that. It does that. Um, so we're faced with this dark irony of it. It may not have any effect on the burdens of caregiving, and it may only, and it will add to the cost that the family bears uh, for care. I, 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 that strikes me as just I, the best I can say is comic dark irony. This seems like the kind of drug that somebody would be willing to make sacrifices for. You know, I'll give up this if we can pay this. Um, this one does not seem like that. No, I mean from the from the you know family's perspective, if they believe that it will help. Oh yeah, no. If, if they believe that it has. will help, yeah, no. I, and you know, I, you know, in matters of cha- in matters of taste, there is no disputation. You know, and what do I mean by that? You know, if it be in things that are matters of taste, it is inappropriate to say that one person is right and another person is wrong. You know, you like sweets, I like savories, so be it. I, I realize, wait a minute, you know, you're talking about food taste there. This is like, you know, life choices. and what, Well, but this is a matter of taste. If it's available, if you believe it's going to help you, you're right. It becomes a matter of taste. And I so believe that that I'm willing to give up, I don't know, um, a college education for my child because I'll pay for this drug for my husband. But I think the t- terrible position to put families in with this drug. The FDA approval seemed to surprise people because I think many people thought that the FDA would specify that it was that the drug was for the people who were in the clinical trials, people with early stage Alzheimer's, but it didn't really say anything about who it's for in you know the the terms of those things, what its indication is. So what you're getting at is the the, the famous FDA label. Um, I've heard FDA uh, 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 staff say, you know, we spend a long time writing the label. We know nobody reads it, but we really spend a long time writing it. Well, this is one label people are reading. And when you read it, you sort of sort of uh, furl your brow a bit and say, it says it's for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. It's uh, you can parse around its requirements for maybe it does say that you need to have amyloid, but it's not very clear even whether a patient needs to have confirmation that they have uh, uh, elevated amyloid. They just have to have, quote, a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. And there's no um, uh, discussion of the severity of that Alzheimer's disease. So taking it 
at its face, the label says, if a clinician says you've got Alzheimer's, you can prescribe this drug. Um, so essentially what's happened with this label is the FDA has, has essentially handed now to the, uh, to the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, or the, you know, Medicare, it's essentially handed to the insurers uh, the need to uh, make the, uh, the decisions around whether um, there's sufficient evidence uh, to support um, a value to support this, uh, the expense of this treatment. And that's where this drug is headed for, which is uh, interpreting the data uh, in light of its availability, interpreting the data around which kinds of patients are likely to benefit and how will we know we benefit them. And so therefore, we should um, let, give them access to this drug. And that will unfold because pretty rapidly we'll see um, that there'll be inequities in prescribing it because uh, depending on how healthcare systems and other systems decide to interpret the label. And so I predict this is headed for a national coverage decision at Medicare. So really, the FDA decision is Act 1 um, or Act 2 in a, in, a, in, a, in a three to four act play that has yet to fully play, uh, obviously play out yet. And so that's what's going to happen, I think, in the next several months of, you know, a national coverage decision uh, will need to be made. What are the steps that someone with Alzheimer's or suspected Alzheimer's needs to go through today to get the drug? Let's assume the drug's at our pharmacy. I think it still hasn't been shipped out. I think they're getting ready to ship it in a week or two. I would want to confirm that they have elevated amyloid with an amyloid PET scan or a spinal fluid test. I would prefer a PET scan because that would more closely um, align with uh, what was used to determine people were eligible for the study. I would, uh, prior to that, actually get an MRI of their brain to confirm uh, and look at the number of microhemorrhages they have. Uh, because if they have microscopic bleeds in their brain, this drug cause, can also cause them. And depending on the number of microscopic bleeds, I would be reluctant to prescribe it. In fact, I wouldn't prescribe it if there's beyond a certain number of them, uh, because it's going to just simply cause more of them. Um, I'd have a discussion as well about whether they want to be tested for the ApoE gene, because if they're an ApoE4 carrier, they're much more likely to have those microscopic bleeds. Um, they're also potentially uh, more likely to progress with their disease. Um, so it creates an interesting risk-benefit trade-off. If we're on board with that, next step would be the PET scan. If that shows elevated amyloid, the next step would be a, a prescription of the drug. Yeah. And of course, you know, questions about it. Right now, the PET scan is not paid for by Medicare. Um, so that's going to be, I think, certainly also part of another coverage with evidence development, a uh, 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 national coverage decision. Yeah. And PET scans aren't, brain PET scans aren't easy to come by, are they? I mean, not every place has them. Well, um, that is correct, although the most of the available radio tracers, um, I can't say every state in the union and every county, it's possible to, within a reasonable distance to get one of those amyloid PET scans, um, but uh, they're available uh, plausibly. But the issue right now, the more important issue is Medicare um, does not reimburse the cost of an amyloid PET scan. That decision was made, uh, don't quote me with the exact uh, number, but some six years ago uh, that the evidence did not support uh, the coverage of that service. Uh, that was a coverage with that, that was a national coverage decision that was made about six years ago, and that still is the case. And then once once the drug has been prescribed, it's do I understand it's a once a month infusion? That's correct, a once a month infusion. Yeah. And so that could that could happen for two or three or four years. Well, this gives the interesting question, which is you know, so for how long do you take it, um, and how do you know that the 
you know, the person's benefiting. And, and in a chronic disease, uh, uh, this is where you really need good randomized controlled data to really describe and get a sense of, you know, for how long do people benefit and, and ways to sort of show that someone's benefiting. Um, uh, the data there are yet to be known for aducanumab. Um, and uh, that will be a learning in general for this kind of treatment. That's a learning that we're going as a field that we're going to have to be um, engaging in. So, Jason, anything that I haven't asked you about that you're dying to talk about um, or, or thought I should be smart enough to ask about? Well, you know, one of the rhetorical points that's used to sort of set up this drug's approval, um, and I've been guilty of it myself is in my own writing, is there hasn't been a new drug in, you know, whatever, 17, 20 years. And that's true. That is, that is a fact. There's, that's a fact. But within those 20 years, a lot has happened. In fact, within the last three to five years, a lot has happened. In the last just few years, we are now able to visualize Alzheimer's disease pathologies, plural pathologies, in a living human, not just amyloid, but tau. So we are now able to conduct clinical trials where we can measure both pathologies and uh, where a person is at in terms of the progression of the disease pathologically and clinically. And there are studies that have been done, most recently a study of a drug called donanumab uh, in phase two that used both those kind of tracers, both those kind of measures and clinical measures. And so what I'm trying to say is, yes, it's been 20 years, but it hasn't been 20 years of a desert. It's been 20 years of progress in the last few years, some very impressive progress. My concern about this approval is that it's put sand in the gears of that progress because in keeping people in those better studies, those necessary studies, um, will be very difficult in the coming months and years with this drug out there. I mean, we'll manage our best as we can. And we'll have a way to figure it out. But this is a real disappointment because we were really making some spectacular progress in the last few years. But we'll figure it out. Well, I think that was a great, a great note to close on, Jason. Thank you so much for joining us again. Your perspective is, uh, is really helpful. That's great to be here. Thanks a lot for uh, 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 giving me the chance to talk with you. If you're interested in hearing from someone on the other side of the debate on aducanumab, check out part one of this week's podcast. In it, I talk with Dennis Selko, an Alzheimer's physician and researcher whose work helped launch the development of drugs like aducanumab that clear the Alzheimer's-related protein known as beta amyloid from the brain. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Our senior producer is Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. Listeners, please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. Do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com, and please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, I'd really appreciate your reviewing or rating the podcast on whichever platform you use to get it. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. <laughs>